I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It's David. It's podcast time. You know the drill. We're trying to make economics, and man, such a year. We're trying to make it a bit more comprehensible, a bit more realistic, and hopefully a little bit more germane to your life. It has been a very, very strange year because we're nearly there at the Christmas for economics I'm joined by the head himself. What's the crack, man? It's all good. It's only another three or four more uh, sleeps to Christmas. Hopefully it's three, because if it's four, it's Stephen's Day. (laughs) Well, you know, you might sleep through. (laughs) Yeah, you have to put the S on Stephen's Day. (laughs) Stephen's Day. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's funny, because I I, I know I spend lots of Christmas up the north. I just can't get my head around Boxing Day. What is is the story for Boxing Day? When you box things off. What? You put all the presents in boxes, I think, or I don't know. No, ask, it's not. Ask, ask, ask someone from oh, right, okay. Ingerland or somewhere. Anyway. You have all the decos up, rare to go. Have you seen our tree? I did see your tree. Well, i tell you the story about the go tree. On, go okay. on. Okay. Uh, this is one of the many, many advantages of following us on patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams. Because <laughs> you know the way lots and lots of people will write in yeah. every week, you know, and lots and lots of patrons will write in. And about a month ago, I got a, and I tried to get to most of them. I could stay up a chance as you're mad. I stay up late at night and maybe we try to do 20, like on a Tuesday night, very late or, or, yeah. or, or a Wednesday or whatever. And uh, I was going through them and usually they're very, very interesting suggestions or we like the podcast, but could you do this? But then yeah. so there's, 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 there's fellas just chancing their own. Your old bollocks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's lots of your own old bollocks. But I've had about a month ago, maybe a bit, bit more, about six weeks ago, one came in by a fella called Damien Mooney. And I said, hi, Damien, how are you doing? He said, uh, he said, I know this could be a bit, you know, chancy, but I'm going to do an interview. He's a student. Right. On economics and finance. A job interview. A job interview. He right. said, he said, you know, he'd never have five minutes. And the thing about it is, of course, you always have five minutes. Because remember when you were a kid? Yeah. If, if there was somebody could give you could give you just a stare, could give you something, right? So I, I just called him up. I gave him my number. I called him. And he was going into the interview. And At that very no, moment. No, no, the, 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 was driving up from Dublin. He was from Offaly. Right. And anyway, he did well in the interview. And he called me back and he said, uh, I just told him, look, you say this, say that, or talk about this. This is the interesting stuff. This, you know, yeah. whatever. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> he says to me, do you want a Christmas tree? <laughs> Which I thought was, you know, it was an unusual thing to say. He said, thank you very much. Do you want a Christmas tree? I said, yeah, of course. And he, I mean, he's, I think it's his dad. And his family run a big Christmas tree oh, right. operation okay. in Offaly. So a couple of days ago, himself, right? And I said, yeah, yeah. And I gave him the address. And himself and his mates, Owen Cronin, two lads, Owen, yeah. Owen and Damon, arrived up here with a massive Christmas tree. Massive one. Wow. And it's up pride of place. I know. It's, it's gorgeous, actually. Yeah, you should have seen it. Yeah. You should have seen they were trying to turn. It was, it was, it was like it was two lads in the country, right? Yeah. And our suburban cow. And they're trying to explain to Carl how to saw off bits of the end of the tree, and it just wasn't computing. And he was going, man, it was like man. it was man. It was like Martians and Venetians are people from Mars and people from from Venus. But anyway, all I just shout out, Damien and Owen, thank you for the Christmas tree. It is the finest Christmas tree the McWilliamses have ever had, and it was free. So when's he starting? Is his new gig? His new gig. I don't know. Sometime in the new year. 
But these we are must the, get him on the podcast. We actually must get him on the podcast. Well, in actual fact, what he was saying, which was lovely, you know, because they're 21, 22, they were saying that so many of their mates listen, which is which I find so gratifying, John, that you can take a subject that, that that was quite remote for, for, for them. For lots and lots, for for thousands of people now, yeah, and make it realistic and make it make it as we were trying to say applicable to people's lives. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. And you get a Christmas tree into the bargain. <laughs> so that's the crack. That's my crack this week. But what a year it's been! Wow, yeah, it really has, John. When you stand back, like park the COVID for a second. Uh, the COVID has to be the COVID. Yeah, it's hard to park the COVID. It is though. very hard. To, I know, I know. It has just been so invasive in in everything we've done, everything we've we've talked about. But also everything in in terms of our change of lifestyle, change of our our working day, everything. Everything. I mean, if I, what I was just, I was thinking the other day about, it seems to me that half of Poland is working for delivery vans these days. Because our, <laughs> I don't know about your door, our daughter, knock, 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 there's some Wojciech there yeah. with another parcel, another parcel. Yeah. But what it's shown is this, the implication of that for retail is phenomenal. Right, the implication we talked about before for rents on Main Street, the implication of that for commercial rents—all this has changed. And what COVID has done, it's done two things. Well, it's done many things. It's, it's profoundly, it's accelerated the future. Yeah. So the future that might have been in 2025, 2026 is here now in terms of our relationship with tech, our relationship with online. You know, you've got kids learning stuff online. You've got universities online. Think about everything. That's not just shopping. Yeah. You've got all our entertainment has been online, mm. right? Which has been a disaster for those of us in the festival business, but we'll, we'll come back again. But the other side of that has been this really unique period where interest rates have remained at zero or less than zero. Mm. Budget deficits have gone through the roof. And when interest rates are at zero, what you have is you have huge frothiness in financial markets, Right. And I think this week we're going to talk about tech, John, from two standpoints. The one standpoint you started on, which is the invasiveness, the pervasiveness, the fact that tech is everywhere. And we are unbelievably reliant on it. Yeah. And when you're unbelievably reliant on tech, you're unbelievably vulnerable yeah. to a tech crash, to hacking, to security, those things. I think Not we're just, even more reliant on it than we probably give credit reliant. for it. And, and the problem is probably... People like you and I still live in an analog age in our heads. Yeah, very much but, so. Yeah, but but our, but our reality is a 21st century, rapidly accelerating tech world. So that's the first thing. The second thing, which I want to talk about as well, is the valuations of companies. Because when you get a tech boom, right? Yeah. And you get low interest rates, it becomes a speculator's charter, right? And the speculator and the investor are two different creatures. Yes. The reason I want to yeah, talk yeah. about this, Airbnb, right? Yeah. Airbnb, right? Was floated last week and it was supposed to be floated. So the company valued itself at $60 a share. So think about that. Right. The people who know the company most intimately valued it at $60 a share. The market decided it was worth $140 a share. So Jeez. people who don't know the company at all, right? Yeah. Bid its price up doubled its price. So what's going on there? So that's what I want to talk about. Right. right? That's, what I, that's what I want to talk about. We're in a very crazy moment. So yes, we have tech, without a doubt. And you never, you never bet against technology, right? Mm. But the question is, you might like the tech, but what's happening to the valuations? So you have something like Tesla. Yeah. Tesla is yeah. worth 600 billion. Now, Tesla is a battery company <laughs> with a car chassis dropped on top of it. <laughs> yeah. It's not a car company. It's a battery company. That's a, Elon Musk, that's his whole thing, yeah. right? Think about it. It's worth six times more than General Motors and Ford combined. That's outstanding. It's crazy, right? So the question is... That's do incredible. These, yeah, do these valuations... So Airbnb is now being traded, is now traded at twice the value that its own executives thinks it's worth, right? Yeah. Tesla which is a battery company that was nobody heard of 10 years ago, is now worth six times more than these two giants, General Motors and Ford Motor yeah. Company. So are we going to face into a massive tech crash, both in terms of the hacking, but also in terms of the stocks? Yeah. Okay. And what happens? Because we've been here before, John. Yeah, we have. In, like, in, in, How does this differ, though? from the likes of the dot-com boom 
of the 90s. Well, I'll tell you what we'll do. Before we talk about, is it a second dot com? Is that where we're at? Because the conditions are right for that. The yeah. conditions are definitely right. Low interest rates. See, what happens in investing and speculation is low interest rates reduce the cost of making mistakes. Right. Because yeah, you're yeah, borrowing yeah. for free. Yeah. So what you do is you're much more liberal with your cash. They also, low interest rates, drive up valuations to levels which are impossible for the company to manage. So that's the one thing, right? The other thing is the pervasiveness of tech. So the idea is it's a, it's a dual thing, John. You can embrace technology but also be sceptical about the valuations of the companies. And that's so the whole idea is two things can always be right at the same time. Right. You know? But I want to know... Is this a problem? Is this overvalued? Should we be worried? But I'll tell you what, to give us a real insight, I want to go now to London, to John Thornhill, who is the innovation editor of the Financial Times. He Guy's knows been, his onions. He knows his onions. We've got right now about markets, data, tech, its impact, etc., startups, the whole thing. So let's go. Let's talk to the expert. John. Alrighty. John, how are you? I'm pretty good, thank you. John, tell me about the Airbnb valuations. What do you, what do you make of this? Well, we've seen an extraordinary year, as you're saying about uh, IPOs or initial public offerings on the American market. Uh, a lot of tech companies have listed. Um, and as you say, some of the valuations appear absolutely eye-popping. Airbnb, $100 billion valuation. And a lot of these companies uh, don't actually make any money. I used to be a Lex columnist at the FT and used to write about kind of valuations of companies. And I took rather an old-fashioned view that... Uh, Companies had a valuation that was dependent on how much profits they made, how much earnings they made, how much dividends they would pay out to their shareholders. A lot of these companies don't produce any profits, they don't produce any dividends. So they are very difficult to value on old-fashioned metrics, as it were. And what people are valuing them on are really their future ability to generate profit and the network effects that they create. So kind of Googles and Facebooks in particular have billions of people using their services. They, in fact, are making a lo load of money, but an Airbnb or an Uber that are not making money have created this astonishing network of people which investors think are going to have a real high valuation and economic worth at some point in the future. So let's, let's talk about Airbnb, because again, Airbnb is one of those companies that almost everybody has used. Lots of people are aware of, even if they haven't used it, they're about to use it or one of their mates has used it. How come it doesn't make money? This is the first thing that I want to understand. And then the second thing I want to understand is, you know, the, the, this time it's different idea, that probably the, the four more or three most expensive words in the financial lexicon. So let's, let's talk about that. But first of all, the Airbnb itself, I, I mean, how come it doesn't make money? Because so many people seem to be using it. Well, I think um, a lot of these companies that are growing incredibly fast, like your Ubers and Airbnbs, they are using kind of a, a technology or a methodology in Silicon Valley called blitzscaling. And Reid Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, has created or wrote a book on this subject. And the idea is that you have to dominate the market. You have to be the biggest player in the world in your sector in order to make money in that in the future. So companies like Uber and Airbnb have made enormous bets on going global and dominating the markets that they're in by creating these phenomenal networks of people. Um, and it has worked uh, to the extent that uh, they are the kind of dominant platforms for booking a room online or booking a cab online. So uh, I think that's part of the reason they are still injecting a huge amount of money, investing a lot of money in growing the network. And when you talk to Airbnb and Uber, they say, well, we could make money tomorrow by just stopping the expansion and turning on the kind of monetization tap and making profits from the network that we have at the moment. I think some people might question whether that's really true because the moment they do that, other competitors are going to emerge and try to take them on. But that's the theory anyway, that these companies should be enormously valuable in the future. So, so John, what, what, what we're talking about is, and it's kind of, it should be quite worrying for people who believe in the free, you know, free market and competition. We're talking about a, a dramatic surge in the tendency toward monopoly. And the implications then, John, once those companies become monopoly, for us, the users, are, are quite stark. Sure. I draw a distinction here between some of the kind of startup companies, the scale-up companies that are now going public, and some of the established big tech companies, the kind of Amazons, the Apples, the Microsofts, the Facebooks, Googles, uh, which are now enormous companies, and they are massively profitable as well, which speaks to your point about the concentration of power and possible monopoly effects that they have as well. 
Um, so I think there are kind of two things going on. At, at one level, you have got the companies that are still scaling and building and are not making very much money. On the other hand, you have got the companies that have established these networks who are now making huge amounts of money um, from their networks. So uh, there are two things going on. I think um, we ought to be concerned about the power of uh, some of the big tech companies. And I was looking at some of the stock market valuations the other day. Uh, when you look at a company like Apple and Microsoft, they were both in the range of kind of 1.5 to $2 trillion uh, of market capitalization. It's, it's kind of mad, well, isn't it? I mean, that's we're, we're, than, we're, we're here in, in Ireland. We have a GDP, which is inflated dramatically, of $350 billion. So that's our entire country has a GDP, yeah. which is worth, what, one third of the market cap of Apple. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's uh, Microsoft's valuation is now more than all of the 30 biggest German companies listed on the DAX. So it gives you a sense of the scale of these companies and how investors are betting on them. Okay, John, let's just talk about, I, I, I want to talk briefly about Ireland and our bet. So Ireland has made probably, in global terms, the most concentrated bet, I would suspect, on tech of any small open economy. Where do you think that'll lead us? Well, I think that the bet on tech in a global sense is absolutely the right one to make. Um, as we've seen through the pandemic, we have all become a lot more reliant on tech. We're shopping online, we're communicating online, we're being entertained online, we're working online. So I think the pandemic has accelerated the future, the digitization of all of our lives. So in a kind of global sense, that's a good bet. I think the world is going to become more connected uh, and we are going to be using these services more and more. Whether it's a good idea to bet on particular companies uh, is another question, I think. And uh, no, I mean, I think what we are seeing is that because of the fears about the monopoly effects that you're talking about, we're seeing a regulatory backlash from uh, the US, uh, the EU and the UK as well, of the regulators, policymakers now trying to get a handle on these enormous companies and whether it's uh, to force them to pay more tax, which has obviously been a big issue in Ireland with Apple, whether it's to get them to open up their networks to more competition, which the EU is trying to pursue, uh, whether it's trying to reverse some of the takeovers that some of these companies have made in the case of Facebook in the US. So I think we're going to see a lot more scrutiny of the big tech companies. But I think the global bet on tech is still a great one to make. Well, it's interesting. I'm going to, I'm going to come back to the issue of data and vulnerability, because you wrote a very interesting piece on that last week. And it's really, it, it's fascinating. But just on the what I would call the kind of Rockefeller effect, because you know when you talk about these huge companies, massive monopolies, and we have, going back 100 years or 120 odd years, an example where big, big companies, which were tech companies, railroads, oil companies, were actually broken up by the United States in order to militate against what we're talking about is their power. So the American government just came in and took all these robber barons, as they call them, into a room and says, we're going to break you all up. Do you see something like that happening? Yes, but in a different way. And I mean, you as an economist would understand this a lot better than I would, David. But a lot of antitrust or competition policy has been based on the theory of consumer harm. Uh, are yes. the companies harming consumers or not? Uh, absolutely, in the case of Standard Oil in America, they were um, back in the kind of early 20th century uh, because they were in prices and killing off the competition in a very obvious way. I think it's harder to make some arguments like that today because Google and Facebook are providing you and I with free services. Um, you know, we are benefiting enormously from the scale effects, the network effects that a Google or a Facebook are providing. So we're getting these amazing free services. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, things you could never um, have imagined a couple of years ago. Um, so where is the harm in that, uh, these companies would argue? Um, it is a more subtle argument um, that uh, the EU in particular is focusing on whether they are now, in effect, killing off their competitors, either by buying them up uh, or whether, because they are such dominant platforms, they are able, in a sense, to see who is going to emerge as a competitor and either kill them or buy them. Um, and I think that is where the uh, competition policy debate is going to go. And John, I think that's the other, the other fear, of course, is the one that of data, of who owns what, of cyber attacks, of the fact that, you know, you, we've said that we as consumers get this stuff for free. We couldn't have believed this 10 years ago. But it also means that we are now heavily, heavily reliant in all our lives on tech 
and a potential crash in tech or, or an attack or, or, or I don't think anybody realises just how vulnerable we are. Well, the point I was trying to make in the article I wrote the other day was that just as we looked at the pandemic, and everyone knew that a pandemic was a real risk uh, that was out there, but somehow we never fully internalised it in terms of how we were going to respond to if that happened. So we are now so massively dependent on tech. Just imagine tomorrow if the internet went down and we had a bit of a Google outage um, earlier this week, but just imagine that became permanent. How would any of us function nowadays? We are so dependent on the tech um, that we are using. And we have seen, and there's an ongoing rolling cyber attack at the moment in America on a lot of kind of government institutions, on some of the biggest companies. And we're seeing these sporadic attacks, which are doing damage to networks, to individual companies, to government ministries. A lot of information is being stolen, some damage is being done. But what if that became generalized? And the truth is that um, no one quite understands all the connections, the interconnections that exist online. No one really governs the internet. Uh, it has been a miraculous kind of emergence of technology. There is no one central authority that runs the internet. And so it is inherently, I think, very vulnerable to cyber attacks, to technical malfunctions. It is astonishing the resilience that there is in the system and the way that very clever technologists have made it resilient. Uh, but still, uh, I think we are going to see sporadic cyber attacks on companies and individuals and governments. And it's the opacity of this world that I think is quite unnerving. And I mean, what's also unnerving is that most of us still live in our heads in the 1990s, or many of us do, okay, of a certain generation. We kind of live in the analogue world, and yet in our heads, but in reality, we're living in very much a fast-forward 21st century. So there's, there's almost like a time lapse in our heads that our comprehension of what's going on seems to me still quite 20th century in my in, in, in my own case, right? But actually, my my day-to-day -day life is, is fast-forwarding at an unbelievable pace. I met... Uh was lucky enough to meet uh, the science fiction writer William Gibson earlier this year, who I think has, writes wonderful books about uh, kind of our digital age and the future. And he expressed it in a way that um, we are the last generation that will make a distinction between our offline and our online identities. Wow. That these two are, are fusing. And I'd never fully kind of uh, got my head around that before, but I think it's a really fascinating concept. I mean, are we a different identity online to what we are offline? Um, or are we just becoming kind of one merged identity? Um, and if you think of it in those terms, then you look at all of our institutions in a very different way. I mean, as you're saying, they have been built for this analog world. We don't really have any sense of how we're going to govern this uh, online world. Um, and if you imagine that the two are fused, we have a kind of very heavy weighting of analog governance, as it were, and almost a complete absence of digital governance. And I think we have to think about these as a combined entity in the future. John, just before we go, just before we go, because it is Christmas time, it has been a pretty weird year. Can I just ask you, can I come back to the original idea of those valuations? Because a lot of people, Irish people were totally burned by a story many people believed that house prices could only keep going up. And that proved to be a cataclysmic assumption, which destroyed many, many, many lives, destroyed all sorts of uh, all sorts of economic and psychological mental health carnage etc uh, are you worried that in all this euphoria about tech that the old fashioned way that you were writing in the lex of valuing companies might come back to bite us and people will say Do you know what i prefer a company that kind of made something called profit i know it's very old fashioned but it's kind of a nice thing and had a stream of income and and, and had a, a balance sheet and a set of books that made sense well, the one thing I did learn on Lex was that I would never trust my own judgment in investing in anything, which is why I don't. And as a journalist, I'm not authorized to give any investment advice at all. My kind of personal view about the valuations in the market is we're seeing two things. We're undoubtedly seeing an incredibly kind of frothy tech market that's developing of a lot of the kind of public offerings that are taking place now. And a lot of these companies are going to blow up. They're simply not going to have sustainable economic models. But other companies and a lot of the big tech companies that we've been talking about, the Microsofts, the Amazons, the Apples, are now making a lot of money on any metric that you really look at these companies on. They are generating 
a lot of money, uh, they fully justify, it seems to me, the valuations that uh, people put in them. And I think the risk in that sense is that there is going to be the kind of regulatory squeeze on these companies, that um, governments are going to think, well, these companies just are making too much money, they're not paying their fair share of taxes, they are having these monopoly positions that we need to kind of tackle. And so I think there is a regulatory risk uh, to the big tech companies, uh, but a lot of them on most investment metrics are still very solid investments. John, we will leave it there. Thank you so much. And listen, happy Christmas. We'll see you in the new year, hopefully, when we can all go out and travel. Well, happy Christmas to you and all of your listeners. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah. The tech world is running away with itself, isn't it? I mean, that was an interesting stat about the devaluation of, of Apple being three times the GDP of Ireland. I know. That's and, just the, and, and the Irish GDP figure is already inflated by Apple because of all the oh, multinationals yeah, yeah. here. So, but it is. Okay, yeah, but yeah, it, yeah. But it, it puts things into context that Apple is worth more than three times this country. That all the whole GDP, everything added up together, which is yeah. kind of phenomenal. And then you think, okay, how does this play out? How does a company that makes no profits? Now I'm not, I'm not talking about Apple. Yeah. But yeah. take let's say take Airbnb, Airbnb or some of those delivery yeah. companies or Uber, right? How does a company that makes no profits become valued at a hundred billion euros mm. dollars? Sorry, which is Airbnb. And then the question is to get into the mentality of the speculator and the investor. So there's two quite different types of players in financial markets. The speculator loves technology because technology disrupts. Yeah. And when you get disruption, you get these massive swings in hope value. So, for example, if you get a situation where you think, well, Airbnb is going to disrupt the hotel industry yeah. forever, then what you're doing is you're banking on Airbnb owning everything, owning the whole industry in five or six years' time. So it's the it's the technological change plus the cultural change yeah. that drives the speculator. And the speculator, speculator comes from the Latin speculare, which means to, to look out for. So right. spectacle, spectator, it all comes from the same word. And these guys were, the Romans were great speculators. The Romans had all sorts of financial crashes. After the Greeks, the Romans was the first big urban civilization that couldn't feed itself. Oh, right. Okay. They couldn't feed themselves, right? Because they didn't have hinterland around it, right? Mm. So the Romans had to figure out all sorts of really highfalutin financial, almost derivatives. Was that what was what drove the expansion of the empire? Was not just kind of obviously gold and power and land and all of this, but started with a need for food? I think what happened was what drove the, I believe what drove the Roman Empire was their unbelievable dexterity with money. They were incredibly good with money. Right. They were really innovative because they had to figure out how do we coax the rest of the world to give us grain 
what can we do? Now, we can go around the world kicking lumps out of them, which, mm. which we did, right? <laughs> but their big agricultural, the big agricultural move the Romans took was taking over Egypt. Right. Cleopatra and, Lord, yeah, yeah. and Anthony, Mark Anthony and all that yeah, sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, all that that was a grain play. It's a great movie. It was a gross grain movie. <laughs> but it was a grain play. It was a play for, for wheat, right? Right, so okay. Cle- we, we, we forget now, because we, when we think of Egypt now, we think of a, quite of a barren place. We think of a place that's quite deserty, etc. Yeah. However, in the ancient world, the River Nile was the key artery in the world. Yeah. So all around the Nile Delta, was probably the most fertile lands yeah. in yeah. all of what they call the known world. And the Romans, of course, needed to feed themselves. So what they did was they had this pincer movement of Caesar, Mark Anthony, the whole thing. This is the end of the Republic. And Cleopatra being the one, the name we all know. Yeah. But the idea there was to actually secure grain supplies. In fact, even going further back to that, the Punic Wars, Carthage, do you remember that? Hannibal? I remember Carthage. Hannibal. Hannibal right. Yes, was, yeah, 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 the so elephants. Hannibal yeah, took the elephants up around North Africa, yeah. up through Spain, right? Yeah. That was over. That was a great. crazy move. That was a crazy move, yeah. <laughs> it was a crazy play. It was a punch. It was a, I was a spectator. <laughs> yeah, punch. Was exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah. But again, the grain story. But what I want to come back, back to is part of the firmament of Roman society was the speculator. Mm. Always regarded as a bit beyond the pale because people didn't really know what this geezer was up to. Yeah. But the, the reason they called him the speculator was... It wasn't just the translator watch out for. It was that they could see things others couldn't. Right. So they were spotting the opportunity. Spotting the opportunity. Yeah. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Speculation. Yeah. But the speculator loves technology because the speculator understands that technology gives disruption, and with disruption, you have super normal profits. Right. The investor, on the other hand, so the speculator loves turbulent times and change. Yeah. The investor, on the other hand, likes no change, likes the status quo. He's steady Eddie. He wants an income or she wants an income coming in every year. Right? And they come in fast on the heels of the speculator. Yeah, so the speculator it down the a spe- bit. Yeah, so the speculator is like the pioneer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the investor is like the settler. Yeah. But there comes a moment where the investor misdiagnoses an opportunity and believes that it's an investment opportunity when in fact it's only a speculative opportunity. And that's what's happening in Silicon Valley right now. Ooh, okay. You see, because so, so the idea is you don't invest in these companies. You're basically taking a punt that everything is going to go right mm. and those companies are going to emerge. But if you look back at history, John, as we like to do, having just made a little Indeed. segue into the Nile and Cleopatra <laughs> and all that, uh, what you see is great moments of technological change tend to come at great moments of financial speculation. And if the okay. rate of interest is low at that time, what you will get is a profound, profound speculative bubble in that asset. Well, now, it doesn't mean that everyone loses money. Yeah. But what it does mean is if you come late to the party, if you pick the wrong company, you can lose everything. Or if you come to the party and you pick the right company, you can gain a fortune. So, just going back to the near history yeah. of the dot-com bubble in the 90s, what, what, what were the interest rates like back then? So, what happened in the late 90s, very good question, John, good thank, question. Thank you very much. As I, was, as I was working in the markets at the time. Oh, right. Right, okay. What happened was in 1997, I found myself in a hotel in Kowloon in Hong Kong right. at the IMF's on Halloween night. 1997. Imagine this big foyer, massive hotel, the IMF's annual bash. The IMF has right. an annual bash every year, right? And economists. I see that's a humdinger, isn't it? It, it is actually a, in actual fact. That night, I went on the lash with Ken Clark. No way. Yeah, I'll tell you all about him in a second, right? <laughs> a brilliant night, a brilliant night. You see a bit of crack. He's he? great fun. He's a total laugh. He's right. a complete laugh. In fact, I'll tell you the story. He was, he was, the story he told was brilliant. So we're sitting up, up there in this hotel in Kowloon, this big mm. posh hotel, and Ken's there, and he's got the, the hush puppies. You know, he wears hush puppies. Yes, yeah, yeah, he does. Yeah, he's big cigar, that. Yeah. big pints of beer, chatting away. It's about four of us. I was with an English guy who knew him, right? Right. So we, we all we all we all met up. But he told a great story of how politicians have rashers, right? And he explained the story. It's a beautiful. He, he explained on the day of Black Wednesday yes. when Sterling fell out of the ERM in 1992, right? When the British currency collapsed, George Soros speculated against it. It collapsed and it totally changed the world. Kent Clark is Home Secretary. 
Mm. Michael Heseltine is Foreign Secretary. Right. Norman Lamont is the Treasury. Yeah. Is the, right? And John Major is the Prime Minister, right? And at the time the currency was collapsing, Ken Clark tells the story of the four of them around a transistor in the kitchen of number 10, <laughs> listening to BBC <laughs> telling them what was happening to the currency that they were supposed to be in control of. <laughs> He just said, isn't that mad? That's incredible. Yeah. And he said, he said, he said, he said you should see four of us. We had a clue what was going on. <laughs> and that's the beauty of Ken Clark. He's like, he tells those stories. Yeah, he says, yeah. this is the reality. And he said, then I'd have to come out and face the press. Yeah. And he said, the chest out and said, we are absolutely convinced of the veracity of our currency. And he go back in, he said, what the fuck's happening? <laughs> that's brilliant. So that night... Well, that was the power of the BBC. It was the power of the BBC back yeah. then, yeah. So they were listening to BBC Radio 4, telling yeah. them what was happening to the currency that they were meant to be in charge of. Yeah. And that shows you what happens when financial markets take control. It's a very interesting discussion for democracy and political representation we might come back to. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's an interesting one, actually. But during the Halloween night, mm, yeah. Halloween massacre of <laughs> 1997, I was in Hong Kong because the Asian crisis was going on. Do you remember the Asian crisis of Thailand devalued, Indonesia devalued? Yeah. Malaysia I, devalued. I have a vague memory of this and, stuff. And Hong Kong, Hong Kong, the Hong Kongers were the next in line. So it was a big speculative wave against all these countries. Now, what happened then is to ask about the dot-com, mm. the way in which the world tried to combat the Asian crisis and then the subsequent Russian default which was in 1998. Right. So the Asians defaulted. The Asian crisis was 1997. Yeah. Phenomenally exciting time to be working in that business. And then the Russians defaulted in 1998. Again, for a bit too exciting times, believe me, to be working in that business, right. right? But the way in which the Federal Reserve in America reacted yeah. to all this turbulence is they dropped interest rates dramatically. Okay. Okay, to try and cool things down which it did, but to your question, why did the dot-com start at that time? The very reduction in interest rates, which was meant to cool down the emerging markets problems, right. gave the opportunity for the speculators. So it's very similar to... Exactly yeah. the same stuff, yeah. right? And the speculators came in and they said, ooh, let's value pets.com at 20 billion or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's exactly the same process. And interestingly, the way in which the Federal Reserve reacted to the dot-com collapse was again to reduce interest rates right down to zero, which fueled the real estate bubble in the United States from 2000 okay. to 2007, which burst in 2007. Yeah. So they're all of a piece. So come here, let me ask you a question then. If there wasn't that Asian crisis and the Russian default and all the rest, they wouldn't have dropped the interest rates. The Fed wouldn't have dropped the interest rates. Yeah. If they hadn't dropped the interest rates, are you saying the bubble wouldn't have happened or wouldn't have happened... In such a bubbly well, kind of way. Wouldn't, wouldn't happen in such a bubbly way. Yes, that's, that's very Bertie Ahern. The boom is getting boomier. Yes. <laughs> gotta love the Bert. <laughs> Bertie. Well, he's gotta love the Bert when it comes to the boom is getting boomier. Yeah, the bubble is getting bubblier, right? Right. Okay, so exactly. So the cost of capital, the rate of interest is very, very important mm. for all these things. So then you think, okay, what's going on now? So mm. we've got the difference between the speculator and the investor. We've got the global financial crisis that is COVID, which is, as you said, could be paralleled to the global financial crisis. That was the default of the Asian and emerging markets. Yeah. Same type of dynamics going on. And then you've got to think, is this always the case? And if we go back further, John, back much further, and right. look out the window here at the Dunleary Railway. Yeah. The Dunleary Railway used to be called the Kingstown-Dublin Railway Line, yeah. the first suburban railway in the world. Oh, really? First in the world, suburban, right? Right, okay. right, right, yeah. Wow. 1833. Right. right. The first actual railway was in a place called Stockton in the north of England, which was in 1827. So it was right. very, very close. Wow. Now, the reason I'm coming to the railways is I want to go back <laughs> a little bit further, right? Which is the speculative mania that was the canals, right? You know the Royal Canal? I, I do, Think yeah. about the Royal Canal, right? Now it's really, you know, you can sit, sit around and have your lunch and blah, yeah, blah, yeah. blah. But the first big speculative mania in this country was on canal shares because canals started in the UK in, there's a guy called Bridgewater, the Duke of Bridgewater, mm. the first canal, I think, in 1867. And what the canals did, they revolutionised 
what you could do transporting agriculture, transporting materials yeah. much quicker than going over land. And you connected places together that were never connected in the past. Yeah. So the cost yeah. of transport collapsed. And as the cost of transport collapsed, the values of these shares, canals went through the roof, right? So you had this total canal mania. And the Brits the, in the north of England and the Midlands, they connected an amazing network. Oh, Actually, you've worked on that, haven't you? Yeah, well, I, I, I worked with, with British Waterways for, for a little while in the Middies department. But yeah, they've British Waterways looks after 2,000 miles of canals and inland navigable waterways. And it's a fascinating... They, they, they called that part of Birmingham, the Grand Canal and the other canals, the Venice of Britain. Of yeah. Course, everything is the Venice of something or other. Yeah, but it's true. But that's where Peaky Blinders is. You know, they're yes, always on the yeah, canal. Yeah, yeah. They're yeah. always, you know, you know, Tommy Shelby always is a lad on yeah. the canal. So the canals was a phenomenal, exactly like... It's an amazing piece of engineering. It is an amazing piece of engineering. Absolutely. And think, the canals in 1790 was like Silicon Valley now. Yeah. It's exactly, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a technology that's going to change the world. Now, what happened then was, of course, the, the shares in canals, because these were all built by private companies. They were mm. never built by the public, right? The shares in canals and canal industry went through the roof, leading to a speculative mania that everybody wanted to own a canal, everybody wanted to own a share in these, in these canal companies, mm. and everybody wanted to build a canal. And, of course, what we did in, in Ireland was we decided... We came late to the party, unfortunately. <laughs> we started the Royal Canal in 1790, I think 1791. Right. By 1794, the Royal Canal Company was bankrupt. So what happened? Why? Yeah, what happened? This is the interesting thing. And this is when, when an investment is based on hope. Yeah. It becomes unbelievably sensitive to being hit by events that have nothing to do with it. Okay? Right, right. right? Yeah, and that's, yeah, yeah. Okay. So what happens in 1792, 1793 the French Revolutionary Wars. Off in his head, Robespierre pointed at him, you're a bollocks, I'm going to kill you, Danton, the whole thing, right? Yeah. The, the terror in France, which terrified the aristocracy here. And if you really want to get into that sort of stuff, Edmund Burke, his reflections on the terror in France, shows you what the upper class thought of what was going on in France. They were petrified because they thought if this French Revolutionary virus spreads to Britain, we yeah. will all be killed. Okay. Right? Yeah. So their whole perception of the future totally changed. They went from being unbelievably optimistic about the future yeah. to unbelievably pessimistic about the future. Right? And once you become pessimistic, all your investments and your perception of what happens, and people start to sell shares. And so what you see is the guillotine, yeah. Robespierre and the guillotine in yeah. France does for the Royal Canal. The Royal Canal doesn't get completed until 1817, right? Because right. they ran out of money. And then by the time they'd completed it, over the horizon was the new technology, the steam engine. Right, yeah, of course. Which made it into... So, so they turned the Royal Canal really into a tourist thing. It was. Yeah. It lost all its commercial nous. And it's that's what I'm saying, is that when you buy companies at these valuations, everything has to go right. For right, these valuations yeah, yeah. to stay, right? But you, you just you just mentioned something there about the speculators being hypersensitive, yeah, of outside, you know, yeah. global events and stuff. This is what I don't understand about Airbnb is that there are global events going on, i.e., pandemic, yeah, and also you mentioned about the French Revolution. There's a kind of rise of populism as well, yeah. So why didn't that affect? Because like, nobody can actually speculate now on how the tourist industry is going to go. No, as um, a travel industry. Or travel anything. industry, yeah. So so why is it valued? At, so I don't get it. I don't so get it. So it's priced for blue skies. And when you're priced for blue skies and it starts to rain, you get drenched. Yeah. So okay. <laughs> take, but, but take that idea that the railway guys, exactly the same, the technology... Speculators. Now the problem is the speculators usually speculate. There are, and they were they were Jonathan Swift used to call them the locusts in the coffee houses. Right. Okay. Nice. <laughs> so and they trade all the time. It's the person who misdiagnoses a speculative opportunity for a long-term investment. They're the people who get burned. Yeah. So the speculators are in and out, in and out, in and out. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. But they always sell on. It's the greater fool theory. You know, you yeah. sell on to yeah. Egypt. 
And then the Egypt believes the hype. And then the Egypt ends up owning the share in a company that has collapsed, like the Royal Dublin Canal Company. Right, here. Right. Yeah, yeah. Now, of course, what happened, think about what else happened. When was the Act of Union in Ireland? 1801. When was our Tone Rebellion? 1798. So you're talking about a period where the aristocracy in Ireland lose their shirt on the canals. Yeah. They're already really nervous. They're terrified of France. Wolf Tone comes in and basically says, I'm going to do a mini France here. Right, yeah. That freaks them out completely. And what do they do? They run to Mother Britain and incorporate Ireland and Britain in the Act of Union, all stemming from the collapse in share prices. Right. Isn't okay. it fascinating? Yeah, yeah, And yeah, of yeah. course, there was a huge amount of bribery went on at the time. Yeah. So the bribery involved in That's bribing the on. aristocracy to actually renege on Dublin, turn their back on Dublin. And once they turned their back on Dublin, the city went into decline. And that's what happened. Which is kind of... And it's all... And then... And then... Yeah, yeah. You come to the next phase, which is the railway shares. Railways, yeah, yeah. And the railway shares are exactly the same. They're going to change the world. And they did change the world. Mm. They're going to change... Like, I mean, even they changed the lexicon. Even the idea is to build up a head of steam. Like, railway terminology came into the, into the people's lexicon. Yeah. And again, exactly the same thing. So we have here 1833 railway built, right? It's called the Atmospheric Railway. Yes. It's quite nice. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. All around Dublin, all around Ireland, then you get this, again, massive speculative mania on railway shares. The crazy thing about Ireland was during the famine, think about it, 1846. Yeah. People were dying in the west of the country and people in the east of the country were worried about their share prices. And that's the truth. There was a mass... I mean, of course, rich people I'm talking about yeah, in the east yeah, of the country. But there was... We don't seem to get our head around the fact that there was five or six different things here happening at the same time. Mm. And the railway mania was happening at the same time right. as people were starving to death. And we were building railways at the same time as so people were, were people, starving to so death. So were the railway speculators then, were they more ignorant of what was going on out west or were they just chose to ignore it? I think they chose to ignore it. I think the interesting thing about the railways... It was opening up the country, so it meant that you couldn't remain ignorant for that long. Yeah. You know, yeah. because it was actually, there was a thing called railway time. They were changing how we perceived time because the railways were so much of quicker course, yeah, than yeah. either the canals or the horse and cart. But, and this is, this is germane to our Silicon Valley conversation, mm. what you always get in manias is far too much exuberance, effervescence, people feeling that this time it's different, people feeling that we can't lose. And then when people lose their shirts and the market collapse, you always get fraud, right? Because there's always in the middle of a speculative mania, there's always a fraudster. There's always somebody <laughs> right. trying to take money from some people, promising them this, promising them that, and not delivering. And here in Ireland, the major fraudster was a guy called John Sadlier, MP. Right. Who was an MP for Tipperary from the Irish Parliamentary Party. Okay. Uh, Parnell's party, mm -hmm. Isaac Butt, all those good fellows, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And Sadlier ends up committing suicide on Primrose Hill in London. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And why? What happened was he embezzled fortunes out of average punters, telling them he was going to invest in railway shares in exotic locations like Sweden at the time. Entirely fictitious. Entirely fictitious. Okay. And obviously was using the money to pay off other debts. And you see that happening all the time. This is the Bernie Madoff. Okay? Yeah, yeah. That type of thing, the swindler in the middle. This reminds me of the monorail episode in The, in the Simpsons. I didn't see the monorail. Oh, no, no, you have to see that one. Go monorail, on. monorail, monorail, monorail. And it's about this guy who comes in, the town, where, where, what's it, Springfield, gets a whole load of money. And they're, they're all, hey, let's go and do something with it. And this swindler comes in and sells them a monorail. Well, sir, there's nothing on earth like a genuine, bona fide, electrified six-car monorail. What I say? Monorail. What's it called? Monorail. That's right, monorail. 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 I hear those things are awfully loud. It glides as softly as a cloud. Is there a chance the track could bend? Not on your life, my Hindu friend. What about us Brendan slobs? You'll be given cushy jobs. I swear it's Springfield's only choice. Throw up your hands and raise your voice. Monorail. What's it called? Monorail. Monorail. 
I love it. Well, it's the same yeah, idea. Absolutely. It's the same idea. And that's what makes The Simpsons brilliant because it's actually very true to life. Yeah. Very, very true to life. So Sadlier ends up committing suicide. Big scandal in Ireland because Sadlier and his brothers set up a bank. Right? Think about how, how sophisticated these guys were. Yeah. They're from Clonmel. They set up a bank and they were, of course, they did the great thing, which is always... Get one brother in Parliament, right? Yeah. Close to the political. Yeah, yeah, Other yeah. fellow close, you know, yeah. just like... Just the, position everyone position nicely. Position everyone <laughs> nicely and then and do your thing. So I suppose the conclusion is when I see the Airbnb, I'm not talking about Airbnb itself, but what I'm talking the mania with all these IPOs, right? Yeah. Which yeah. are all being issued, going through the roof, everyone looking at blue skies. I think of canals. Mm. Go, go for a walk on the Royal Canal and imagine the amount of labour Oh, yeah, it was incredible. And even that expression, the Irish Navi. Yeah. The Irish Navi comes from the Irish Navigator. And the reason they were called Navigators was because they were working in the wet. They were working in the water. Yeah. And so the Irish Navi, because Irish Navis built the canals. Yeah. And they built, obviously, the canals here, but they built them in in the UK. But when I I look at that, I always think, wow, somebody thought that this was going to change the world and bet their house on it, and it didn't. And when I get the dart here now, mm. from Dunleary into town, those railway lines are the same lines that were laid in 1833, like nearly 200 years ago. Yeah, the ones right? we used to put pennies on. The vo- <laughs> and, and watch the trains squash them. Yeah, it was brilliant. exactly, exactly. So what I like is that technology changes the world, but not everybody who bets on technology wins. Mm. So... We as a country have bet on technology, which makes complete sense. But when you look at all those speculators and you look at all those IPOs and you look at all those effervescence and you think back to the Russian crisis, the Asian crisis, you think back to the war in France, all these things that trigger Mm, mm. changes. It just suggests to me that one of the lessons of 2020 is maybe COVID has taken our eye off the ball of other risks. Yeah, that true. are out there in the world. Yeah. And when COVID dissipates in time, other risks will re-emerge. And I think they will make some of those investments taken in 2020 look not only reckless, but incredibly stupid. So don't drink the Kool-Aid. Don't drink the Kool-Aid, <laughs> exactly. What do you call it? Caliphate capitalism. I love that. <laughs> Caliphate capitalism. This is like when we all bow down to the God <laughs> yeah. and actually we lose our reason. Yeah, exactly. Caliphate capitalism, that's... Genius, genius. We'll come back to I'll, that. I, no, 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 no. I'll write a book called that. <laughs> Take all the royalties. <laughs> I know you're sitting there worried about what you're going to give that person you love for Christmas. Give them the gift of knowledge with the Dave McWilliams podcast. We're going to give you, for December only, a full year's membership with a 15% discount. So, for that person you love, who loves economics, loves learning, Loves the crack. Loves all this carry on. Dave McQueen's podcast, Christmas special present. Patreon.com forward slash Dave McQueen's. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.